Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program. Be sure to start with, uh, no one would have believed that you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> no one would believe in the early years of the 21st century. <laughs> the affairs of the, 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 the Aberystwyth basement, <laughs> basement of international politics are being observed by people on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, across the immeasurable void of the mountains... In Warwick, minds immeasurably <laughs> superior to ours viewed this department's weather conditions and beach with furious envy, and slowly and surely drew their research proposals against us. And have to do that again because we have it on mics. So. <laughs> <laughs> H.G. Wells's 1898 novel *War of the Worlds*. The protagonist's brother describes seeing a mob of people fleeing from the Martian invasion. He says, "There were sad, haggard women trampling by, well dressed, with children that cried and stumbled." their dainty clothes smothered in dust, their weary faces smeared with tears. With many of these came men, sometimes helpful, sometimes lowering and savage. Fighting side by side with them pushed some weary street outcast in faded black rags, wide-eyed, loud-voiced and foul-mouthed. There were sturdy workmen thrusting their way along, wretched, unkempt men, clothed like clerks or shopmen, struggling spasmodically. A wounded soldier, my brother noticed, men dressed in clothes of railway porters, one wretched creature in a nightshirt with a coat thrown over it. But buried as its comparison was, certain things all that host had in common. There were fear and pain upon their faces, and fear behind them. War of the Worlds is paradigmatic, to use Alex's word, of much sci-fi that followed it in the century after. It features many things we now see as almost cliched tropes of science fiction, but it's also very much grounded in its era and how it views society and warfare. I'm Matthew Campbell, I'm currently hatless, and joining me this week... I'm Alex Ho-Season, and I never figured out how to use a wheel. I'm Blenheim Bowen, and hopefully, unlike the Martians, I will die of my common cold. And I'm Charlotte Botfield, and I'm now terrified of red plants. So, by tradition now on the podcast, um, Alex and I don't really pick the book that often. Uh, and this one was actually chosen by Blenheim this month. So, I guess you should start and say why you want to do a Victorian sci-fi novel. Uh, right, yeah. Um, well, I this was one of the first books I read... Um, as as a kid, and um, I probably set me down the path of liking sci-fi. Um, so for for me, it's it's you know it's just been with me for most of my living memory. Um, but also because a lot of the other you know sci-fi tropes I've seen since reading this, I see them being connected to the appearance of them in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Um, so I think it's also very influential. Um, for myself and um, sci-fi as a whole uh, so and I think it's good to always go back to the classics every now and again so I was more than happy to get the podcast to talk about and a very old one of the oldest sci-fi novels and many of his themes are still very relevant to us today as we'll no doubt find out in this episode okay so I mean one of, one of the things that when we were talking earlier I, I said that I mean the there's a lot of references and, 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 and kind of thematic similarities in here with a lot of history that, to be honest, I'm not massively familiar with, right? But, I mean, the, the, the most obvious point that comes out, though, is, is, is the colonialism point. Um, does anyone want to...? It's kind of frightening, actually, how this book is written in the 1890s, 
but much of the colonialism very much from the British carries on for decades after this book is written you have the issues with the bacteria that affects the British in Africa um, it's, it's, he's ahead of his time well I mean this is the thing he's sort of the intelligentsia of the era clocking colonialism for what it is right mm-hmm. the, I mean, it's not some noble civilization, civilizing process it's an invasion of their ecology destruction of society and the literal consumption of them when it comes to the Martians. And it's very much to the flipped on itself. The colonizer is becoming the colonized. Yeah. I was particularly interested by the ending. He hasn't closed the story. We know the Martians may have got to Venus, I think it mm-hmm. is. And there's a more than big possibility they could come back. This is what happens to Europeans in Africa and in America and other places that they colonize in the 19th and 20th centuries. They come and then they go and then they keep on coming back. So, as you say, it's of the time. Also, the Europeans come back after handling the diseases that killed them off mm-hmm. in the first place. So, the, the obvious parallels there. If the Martians got a hang of pretty, uh, sorry, <laughs> earthly bacteria, um, we wouldn't have had such a cheery ending to the book. Um, I mean, is there a sort of fictional twist on that in the so it's portrayed throughout that the Martians are so alien to us that we can't possibly understand how they think or how they move or what their anatomy is like. And that's fine, except because the parallel of colonialism, the differences we created between us, the colonizers, and them, the colonized, were fictional. Mm-hmm. We decided that these people were different from us, despite a lack of scientific evidence. That's one thing I found particularly interesting, because Mars is dying. That's the reason why they want to move to Earth. It's presumed. It's presumed that Mars is dying, and that's why they want to move to Earth. And I think, well, if Earth was dying, and and Earthlings had a spaceship to move to a new fertile planet, well, I think they would. Yeah, and Wells... But he makes that clear in the book. We shouldn't judge them too harshly because look what we've done to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he makes point, you know, Martians are intelligent creatures, but we should, they shouldn't be without pity. I think he certainly comes back to a kind of idea of, well, if humans have... He seems to be accepting, and I think he is accepting, and other stuff because I've, I've read that there's some kind of base level of human need, right? This is the kind of liberal state of nature thing where, you know, well, everyone's at war with all against all until we finally put some social arrangement in the way. But then, of course, there's always that kind of undercurrent of, of, of what if it all goes wrong. I mean, in the, in the early colonial period, you know, when they discovered other people on, on, on the Americas or, or wherever, they had to go back to Spain to talk about it for a little while to decide if God would forgive them, right? And, and, and that was an entire negotiating process that eventually led not to the idea that people were necessarily different species, but that there were people who weren't susceptible to being saved or, or whatever else. But they had to have a bit of a chat about it first in the, was it the Congress of Salamanca or, or something like that in the 16th century? So, I mean, there's also this kind of colonial fear, right? I mean, at this time, you know, the British Empire is the industrial, economic, or whatever capital of the world, you know, and, and, and the, they play they play up to that quite a lot. That's like why London the is the mother London. of all cities yeah. and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, if you were going to see a city from space at that point, it was going to be London. Yeah. Six million people, he makes great sort of, he goes on at length about the size and the, and the grandeur of London. 
of course that kind of consistent colonial fear of what if they were here right? I mean I, I think one of the things that I sometimes find quite hard to imagine is the geographical separation the imagined geographical separation between kind of home and, and, and the colonies as it were well, which of course isn't entirely factual because yeah. we know there were slaves coming back and forth and you know servants and merchants and all of the rest of it you know the myth of white Europe is, is exactly yeah. that it's a myth but there, there certainly seems to be this kind of I mean, there's also a disconnect between the industrial empire and... So, what do we see the Martians destroy? It's, it's the home counties, it's the English countryside, it's railway sidings and cricket pitches. And each part of yeah. I, was, I was cheering yeah. them on at that point. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and a few hat shops as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. And then, yeah. when, when, the when they get to London, what is it? It's rivers and suburbs, and, yeah. and so it's mentioned in passing that it's because it's the heart of the empire and the beating heart of our industry, but... Maybe it's because of the need to make the horror of the book happen on a human level. We're told that. We don't see it. And I guess maybe Wells is assuming that the, the reader is to take that assumption, that this is civilization being beheaded. The expecting, definitely expecting the reader to have a very good knowledge of English geography. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think another aspect of it, and I was always going to bring this up, but another aspect of it is during that period, in many ways, London maybe isn't the centre in the way it is now in the, in the way that we kind of see it, you know, in terms of the financial economy and everything, but it's certainly all canals lead to London, yeah. right? And, and, and so it is quite literally the centre around which everything else is designed. So I, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's maybe beheading is not the wrong word, uh, not the right word, sorry. But I mean, I mean it's certainly the kind of gathering point for, for civilization. you know? I, I mean, he says with a certain amount of disgust somewhere in the book that about half of the government have convened in Birmingham. Yes. <laughs> if, if, you, if you want to take out the social economic heart of the global political economy in that time, you yeah. take out London. Yeah. Yeah. And also the psychological aspect of it as well. I mean, we could imagine the aliens understand fear um, in humans, maybe. I don't know. Uh, there's, there's, um, a de- there's a degree to which, yeah, if you were going to hit one city, you'd hit London. But there's, there's also a significant degree of anthropocentric. Uh, Anglocentrism in oh, there, yes. right? I mean, yeah. I'm not entirely sure that 19th century China would have been too vastly upset by the sudden removal of London's place in the world, right? Mm. And, well, and, and um, uh, Wells refers to the Commonwealth of Mankind towards the end of the book, some sort of stirrings of human unity now that the Martian threat is evident. Now that someone can stop Britain, Britain is very much into. Yes. Well, you, you, but that's an open question. In the, book, yeah. so. the artillery man is going on about how we're all going to join together and make yeah work together. Well, yeah, yeah. adapt to the new game. Yeah. yeah. So, so throughout the novel, there are characters who represent particular ideas, and the artilleryman, as well as being the defeat of military, is the socialist improver. And I mean, I don't know to what extent people think of is he there as a sympathetic portrayal of the idea. Or is this Wells' way of going, look, these utopian idealists are just nuts and it's never going to happen? Could be both. Well, I think, I think he's reasonably... I mean, Wells was an internationalist anyway. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can say that's aside from the book or it's written right through the book. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know the history of the book, as it were. Um, but I think there's certainly repeated observations throughout the story, particularly when he's hidden away and he comes back and all that kind of stuff, that... You know, oh, they're not actually here to wipe us out, you know, and so and so on. There's this kind of pragmatist bent to it. And so you end up 
sympathising with the artilleryman, or the character, I think, ends up sympathising with the artilleryman in the same way as characters end up sympathising with horrible things in, in World War Z, which we've done previously, right? You know, that kind of, well, actually the situation... In World War Z, it was that actually you're relying on a form of apartheid, right? And that's terrible but necessary, or, or whatever. You know, this kind of idea that we will come back and the underground kind of railroads and cabins and, 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 and gutters and everything else, you know, it's not that uncommon an idea, I think. I mean, the, you know, these are things that have been romanticised in other forms of literature at the time, um, you know, because of, because of this kind of um, utopian technological worldview. Um, I mean, also, interestingly, at that point, you start seeing the kind of rat analogy, right? Yeah. We, we are become rats, basically, in the mm -hmm. face of this threat. You know, but what, what is the force of the rats? Well, it's the swarm, isn't it? And it's the disease carrier. Mm. Yeah. The, 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 the rodent is the smaller creature that gets among you and gives you the disease which destroys your civilization. I found it particularly interesting how he regularly said, talks about humans being like animals, so these rabbits at one point, yeah. and ants gets mentioned at another point. Um, this sort of analogy between humans are now not the top species. Well, the rabbits thing feels almost Malthusian, right? I mean, certainly it would have been grounded in that era of thinking about populations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly kind of a early period of, of that form of economic management. Um, you know, I mean, it's not far off, you know, Marx's, Marx's works being published and all of that kind of stuff, you know, Ricardian economics is, is a, you know, is a big thing. You're having the rise of, you know, you're starting to get things like welfare theories and, you know, the beginnings of the modern economic paradigm. Um, yeah, two things. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think about Malthus when he was talking about the rabbits. For me, it was just a device to try and explain how we, poss we may never really comprehend what the Martians are doing. Maybe like rabbits, trying to understand human buildings. Um, so I, I, I had a completely different uh, yeah, take I mean, on that. I, I think it's um, just particularly in those conversations with the artillerymen, yeah. you know, when, it, when he's talking about possible ways to resist, because basically all the, all the ways in which the humans can resist are things that the Martians can't really do, right? They, um, you know, reproduction, um, it's quite big on the eroticism in the book. I mean, it's kind of mentioned in a very kind of Victorian way, mm -hmm. but it is mentioned. Um, and, and, and also the idea that there's lots of them, right? I mean, throughout you know, the military engagements in the book, oh, you know, this cannon has fallen or this gun's been neutralised, the ammunition stores have been blown up, but there's lots of them. You know, I mean, it's very much the kind of we are legion kind of thing, um, which in, in, in the making the assumption of some kind of great British national spirit, yeah. as I think Wells quite often does at some points in the book, um, you know, that's, that's basically undefeatable. The second thing I thought with the artilleryman was his, um, well, it's a critique of the middle classes um, yeah. when he talks about the people who will happily be caught and fed by the Martians and farmed um, after running around the countryside starving. Um, and also, I mean, it's, it's an attack on the, sort of the just consumption and, and complacency of the, you know, the clerks, the businessmen, not they're not he doesn't attack workers 
who might feel like that as well, which I found quite interesting. Mm, and, I find that um, quite and I find that immensely relatable today as well. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was surprisingly modern, that bit, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it yeah. was. And, well, pe- and people would willingly turn on your fellow humans, yeah. even though you're confronted with this alien. So to what extent is that modernism a result of it meant to be a comment on human nature? And to what extent is it... I mean, many of these structures of British class haven't changed, right? Yeah. Or at least people who advocate that argument think that it still works that way. I mean, it's quite a small-c conservative view of British structure, right? Mm. Oh, no, I, I think there's certainly this kind of, particularly the kind of technology in the book follows that kind of slightly Whiggish society as an organism type thing. I mean, the, the, the main character pretends to be shocked when the artilleryman starts talking this way. But all throughout the book, he's quite quick to say, oh, you know, it was at that point I realised how weak a fellow he was. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and how he's always, you know, and his brother, of course, is, is this, you know, chivalrous, chivalrous. gentleman. Yes. You know, so despite that kind of um, modernist take, I mean, he's still got this kind of conservative Victorian um, hangover. The, the, the brother's weird because... So there's that scene where the, the, the female refugee is asking if he knows how to shoot a pistol properly. And the brother, the brother character is lauded for lying and saying yes. <laughs> so they're in a life or death situation. They make no attempt to work out what their best survival strategy is because they think appearances is more important and he's lauded for that decision. Mm-hmm. And to me that really cuts against the paragraph we read out earlier which was the idea that this war is destroying meaningless social structures. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly the section where um, that he's being attacked and he he's been given the gun or or whatever, um, you know. And he's the, he's the chivalrous man and everything else. I mean, if 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 it was a kind of fairy tale in 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 a way, you know, he would have found a way to get away without doing what he does, which is gun the guy down. Yeah. Um, he doesn't actually shoot them; he just points it at them. Yeah. He fires it. Uh, no, he threatens to shoot a guy's horse from a carriage behind them, I think. Right. Um, I don't recall him shooting the assailants who are trying to... Okay, sorry, uh, I misread the that. I misread that point there. Um, but he does take the gun, pretends to know how to use it, and points it at the people, and then they run away, I think. But of course, I mean, it's called War of the Worlds, and our, our lasting image of this is, of course, the tripods and Thunder Child and the actual battle. But almost the entire book, there's no fighting. Yeah. And the protagonist doesn't take up arms at all. This is a military novel about refugees and civilians. Well, I think for most wars, most of the people involved in them aren't fighting, right? That's absolutely true, but it's unusual in fiction. So military fiction of the 20th century tends to focus on the fighters, and now we see other things focusing on refugees, video games like This War of Mine. And actually, from, from a military sci-fi point of view, this is the starting novel. And it's not about the actual war. I mean, I was thinking about the actual term worlds, war of the worlds. Now, we're meant, I assume, to assume that it's Earth versus Mars. But you saying about the not much fighting going on, I mean, is the world meant to be the middle class versus the working class? Two different worlds. And this was, these were just ideas I was coming up with when I was reading it. I mean, I think early on there's certainly the space fascination, right? Yeah. Mm. But then that quickly disappears. Yeah. And it, the whole the whole text takes place within a few miles of London, but you have people in the text from very different worlds, despite all being within a few miles of That's each true. other. Well, I mean, there's quite clear points at which 
Wells puts forward the idea that the kind of mass of refugees and everything else, I mean, there's no difference between them, right? Yeah. You know, the right of civilization. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't really pick up on that necessarily. I think I was just reading too much into it. There's well, I mean, this is, you know, I'm just saying that as someone who would definitely look for that kind of stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think for me, the reason why I started to think about it is that bit quite near the beginning of the book where he goes to the landlord of the pub and takes the pony and cart mm. to take yes. his wife. And he says something along the lines of, it didn't occur to me that the landlord might also want to use this horse yeah. to get away. It was almost as if he's not a part of, he's not part of his world. I mean, th- this is also the bit where very early on it, it becomes clear that it's the, this is quite dangerous and that something needs to be done. And the people around the first Martian cylinder, they, they go tell the authorities. The other thing they decide is that we need to tell the local aristocrat. You tell the local yeah. landlord because yeah. he's the nobleman and he's in charge, and of course he must officially be informed. It's on his land, I think. Yeah, no, 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 his horse or common. Yeah, oh, is it? but yeah. They, they they tell the the, the they tell the local aristocrat because you know that's the structure. So what do you do? They, yeah. in, in eighteen ninety eight. He'll get do. the military on because he yeah. probably yeah. was in the military. military yeah. um, but I mean, going back to your point about the the war, the fighting. I mean, yes, he doesn't actually do any fighting, but he does account for a lot of fight. He was yeah. in. You know the battle in Shepperton and Weybridge, and his account of the battles. I mean, and and then of course the brothers' account of Thunderchild yeah. uh, versus the, the tripods. Um, I mean, for me, there's a lot of detail of actual fighting in the book. I mean, because yeah, you're right about he doesn't. The narrator, or the the characters don't do it themselves, but they still tell you a lot of details in the battles. And um, so you're I mean, sorry. you're you're a um, a strategist who deals with. Uh, navies and space, which is <laughs> beautifully appropriate for this. And you were saying that Thunderchild's not this accidentally chosen ship. I mean, it represents Britain's imperial might in the form of the navy, but there's also a lot of specifics in there, you were saying. Uh, well, I mean, the, the choice of a battering ram, or sorry, a ramming ship or torpedo ram, I mean, it reflects the naval warfare debates of the day that were very popularised as to, you know, what is going to be the dominant battleship of the future. Is it going to be the all-big gunship, which we would know today as the Dreadnoughts, or is it going to be the battering ram? Um, And the ram came about as, you know, it had its moment of glory in the Battle of Lisa in 1866 between the Austrian and Italian navies, uh, where through a fluke, um, we now know as a fluke, um, some Austrian ships were sunk through ramming. So... The, the the ram was seen as the way forward for some people in naval warfare. So for me, that's how the battering ram was chosen, rather than a big gun warship. But and also another interesting point is that the Martians knew what artillery was by that point, but they, it seemed they didn't quite know what yeah. to make of this ship coming towards them. They might have thought, oh, it's just another harmless transport ship like all the others, but it wasn't firing on the Martians. And then it rammed into, and I think it took out two of them, uh, one of them as in an explosion. Um, so there are those reasons going into how and why it was a ram, because um, it serves the plot point as well. Um, but as then, as as a strategist, I like the warfare in this because it shows the Martians and the British adapting to each other's ways of fighting. So. Um, you have the Martian, the Martian tripod being blown up outside uh, Shepparton, and since then the Martians retreat into more defensible positions until they assemble more Martian machines, prepare the black smoke, and then advance 
on London, which the British had prepared in the meantime, but they were they couldn't prepare for the Black Smoke. So the Black Smoke is one of the many ways in which this book weirdly predicts World War One. It's quite frightening how well it predicts World War One when it is. 20 years before World War One, I, I actually had to go back and check what year this was written in because the so many things that occurred during World War One happened in this book. As you said, the the, the mustard gas is, is one of them. The um, the way that the um, invaders die from bacteria here is, is very similar to how the British and the Germans die in Africa. Um, you had some other... There's, I mean, there's a heat razor flamethrower. There's the armored fighting machine, which is impervious to small guns. Yeah. There's the, the 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 working assembly machine. It's described strangely, but what it's clearly doing is laying down metal panels in front of it and then moving on to that. Because that's how a tank works. There's also the centrality of the artillery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as the as the what gets you to fight. What is the primary thing you need to keep supplied and keep building? It's artillery, because um, they will make mincemeat out of other things. One of the things that I found particularly interesting is how the timeline of this book, I can't remember exactly how long, but it can't be any more than about a month between the start and the end of the book. Well, it's incredibly rapid, and yeah. we know that beats World War One. but of course the reason it's incredibly rapid is they don't have to invade over land or sea, they don't have to hit a line of defences, they can come in through the air, they use the third flank. And so, strategically, okay, they, t- they talk about hot air balloons as the ultimate observation method, but... He's spot on about the potential for aerial insertion of forces. But I wonder mm-hmm. if Wells had really considered the idea that war could carry on in a Western world for as long as the First World War really did, mm-hmm. or whether he would have assumed that it would be over before Christmas, as the saying goes for the First World War. I'm not sure he even considered making it any longer. Well, maybe not directly answering the question, but again, one of the things I do like in this book is how resistance organised resistance does actually continue after what seems to be decisive battles um, I mean the Steven Spielberg remake uh, of the film, uh, of, of, the, of the book uh, they have this big battle where the main character's son runs off and somehow survives um, but anyway that battle is seen as you know oh that's the end of it now, we lost that battle therefore it's all over whereas in, in, in the book you have the scene where he emerges uh, from the um, oh no, this before he emerges from the crater, he can hear the thudding of artillery somewhere in the distance, which shows that you know it's the, the fight isn't over, and mm-hmm. too many other depictions of wars in general, not even you know alien invasions, seem to have this thing about there's this one fight you mm-hmm. lose it, and then one big battle, that's it. Yeah. yeah. One, I so I was thinking about this has been adapted a lot in various loose ways so there's of course the Spielberg version there's Jeff Wayne's musical version with the art, accompanying artwork which is probably the iconic look and then there's the 1950s American film version 52 I believe yeah the Orson Welles radio broadcast and the Orson Welles radio broadcast and it's yeah. famously non-existent moral panic that is an urban myth but what I found interesting about those was I was flicking through my edition of it and in the front was a um, artwork which had presumably come with an early edition of what the fighting machine was supposed to look like and it was on a tripod with lattice steel and it's little metal tentacles but holding an almost literal camera box and I realised how much of the visual depictions of this novel are based on the technology of the day so that early artwork is ooh cameras and, and lattice steel work the 1950s American one the Martian stuff looks like a combination of nuclear technology and electronic home appliances Spielberg's one is computerized. Um, Jeff Wayne's musical artwork version, the, the Martian fighting machine looks like a plastic bubble car because, you know. 
bit like a lava lamp. Yeah, it's so, yeah. retro futurism. Yeah, the book is almost timeless in that way. You, we can. It's set in the eighteen nineties, but it's can easily be rewritten to fit in today or in the future at any point, really. And so maybe it's vital that there's not that detailed a description of what they look like. Maybe that would have dated it. I mean, possibly, well, quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the direct, I was just thinking as you were talking about the artillery. I mean, in terms of the direct things that seem to be kind of, I mean, I guess half of a cliche is the way it's adapted to the contemporary time, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we know that the way the Martians arrived, something similar had been done by Jules Verne, right? And and in fact, there's numerous similarities with Verne's stuff, apart from, I mean. Jules Verne, another writer from roughly the same period, I mean, he tended to write in much more detail about the machinery and the contraptions and the science. But, you know, we saw a few months ago with Starship Troopers, the orbital insertion of of troops and, and, and all of this kind of thing, right? So, you know, you can see that I don't know. I mean, I mean, when I was reading it, you know, the, you, you hear about the Martians being dropped to Earth, and all I can think of is Halo, the the game, yeah, mm-hmm. right? Because they drop in orbitally or Games Workshop or whatever else. So it, it, it's quite a hard to believe that when Wells was writing it, he was thinking, "Oh, I'll leave this bit a little bit vague, and they'll update it in the future." <laughs> but it, it's certainly kind of there's certain elements of it which it's hard to separate the fact from the cliche, and so it becomes yeah. quite uncanny. I mean, this, this is the Seinfeld isn't funny problem, right? It did so much to codify what we mean by adventurous military sci-fi that it's hard to separate out its ideas. Mm. But you were talking about earlier the... So we talked about techno-fascism in both Starship Troopers and Brave New World. Yeah, yeah. And, and the role that technology plays in these things. And how do you see that working with War of the Worlds? Because Wells clearly loves technology. And we see from his other books like Little Wars that, you know, war can be quite fun in a, in a play sense. But the technology in this book were meant to find horrifying? In terms of the... Oh, in terms of the, the Martians and stuff. I mean, I, I think the reason I said that earlier was just because there's just aspects of that kind of attitude to science fiction that you see becoming becoming visible in War of the Worlds, right? I mean, uh, you know, Thunderchild is a character, as you said earlier, right? I mean... You know, and all the you know decisive battles and explodey bits, and the kind of two or three chapters detailing the heat ray eviscerating various home county English villages. Right? I mean, I I, I think there's a certain fascination, which is quite possibly a symptom of just the time. Right? You know, Wells being a socialist thinker and everything else. You know, he's kind of interested in canals and expansion and industrialization and all of that kind of thing. One of the one of the, one of the interesting things, and I, I think it's commented on quite openly in the book, is the fact that the machines they have don't work in like, the right way. Yeah, they're not out. They're so alien to us, right? Yeah. So I mean, we're fairly uh, at home with the cog and the cam and the piston, right? And 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 just that entire vision just breaks down because, of course, you, if you saw Martians your automatic point of reference is yourself and how you move around the world and how you negotiate things and how you don't generally get stuck in pits you know because there's ladders and cranes and whatever you've got legs you know so I think it's that kind of I mean is that is that what the phrase uncanny valley means I never really meant that I mean I never really understood it I mean it's 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 kind of close enough but not quite well, the, the, the uncanny the, the idea of the uncanny valley is that if it's far away from us it's somehow endearing because uh, uh, 
like Wally as a robot is really cute. Okay. Yeah. But if you make a more realistic robot, like like the best ones we can make now, it looks really creepy because okay. the differences yeah, yeah. become more stark. Yeah. Well, exactly. So I mean, to use a different example, one of my favourite depictions of of hell in a film is is in a film called um, in a film called Wrist Cutters. Right. Absolutely fantastic film. But one of the points at which the character realizes they were in hell is that all the tables have one short leg. Right, so none of the tables are stable. So it's kind of close enough, but yeah. I mean, not quite. Well, I mean, Wells makes plenty of parallels between the humans and the Martians and what they do, and, and also their machines. I mean, he makes, like, he, he references the Thunderchild as maybe the closest thing as humans have to the Martians' machines because it's a big metallic body that humans have built for their purposes to get them around the seas and to blow things up and transport goods and people. So he says that the humans are sort of in many ways similar to Martians in that regard because we've made all these machines to extend our biological bodies. It's just the Martians are to, you know, the nth degree better at it and more dependent on it, it seems. Well, it's interesting because he also points out that the Martian machines seem closer to humans than the Martians do. Yeah. They, they feel organic. It's the way they move. Yeah. And I, I, I think as well as that, it's the fact that the machines are, at least to human eyes, quite clearly recognisable as being designed to solve a certain kind of problem. Yeah. Whereas the Martians, being as they don't communicate, at least you know verbally or anything else, and frankly are described a little bit like the head of the Predator in, yeah. in the films, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're further away. They are more alien, right? But, I mean, I guess if the Martians, by definition of living and having to ingest and all of that kind of stuff, have some of the same problems. I mean, they labour like people do. They work. Yeah. Right? And so that brings in some commonality. Well, I mean, but the language the language used to describe the Martians' eyes... So it's stated that they don't digest normally, they just inject human blood into the strains themselves. But it's very much phrased in a Darwinian sense as this is more advanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that was quite interesting. It wasn't just for the horror of mm-hmm. it. The way that he describes how they don't have a digestive system because it's using up energy or something like that. It was it was an interesting twist on the whole horror isn't actually horror bit. But it, it certainly implies a, a, linear, a line between the primitive and the advanced, and the, the Martians are further towards a destination. They're not different, they're better. Yeah, well, he doesn't he imply that humans might go this way? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a step with a bigger theme, which is, you know, the dethronement of humans on Earth. And, the, you know, he calls the period after the Martian invasion the Great Disillusionment. So, I mean, yeah, that goes in a sense like, you know, we humans, you know, almost in the Victorian age where there was that superiority, you know, and not just in terms of the imperial superiority, but in terms of we know everything there is to know in this age. Um, but... So, yeah, the fact that, you know, there might be these creatures who are so much more, more Darwinistically advanced than us. That was just to add to the dethronement of the reader. I mean, I, I guess the... So one of the ideas of sci-fi horror is that your joyous exploration will lead you to terror. And this is, this is where Wells and Ashley Lovecraft have the parallel going on, where you take this thing associated with, you know, exciting adventure, we're going to explore Antarctica, or we're going to point big, we're going to point big telescopes at Mars... And we're going to learn stuff, because we're humans and that's what we do. And the thing you learn is, oh God, no, this is awful. And I think that's where both Wells and Lovecraft find their fundamental horror. And interestingly, they both, to an extent, overturn the idea of the White West as the one that knows what's going on, and the other civilizations as the one 
which is lower, although, of course, Lovecraft does in a tremendously bigoted way. Well, I mean, I would agree. Sorry about that. Um, I would agree, but I think the fundamental difference between uh, Lovecraft and, and Wells and then also um, Shelley with Frankenstein yeah. is that in Shelley and, and, and Lovecraft, people go and find stuff and go to places they're not supposed to go. For as more of the world it comes to us. But, I th- you know, I think that's kind of slightly more... I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily want to put a motivation on it, but there, there's certainly more of a kind of elemental, you know, oh, it wasn't my fault yeah, kind of thing going on. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I didn't get the same reading about sort of, yeah, curiosity killed the cat. Um, you know, you well, go and find out these things and it's awful. Um, I, I didn't get that reading. It, it, explicitly, um, it explicitly says later in the novel that people died trying to take apart a heat ray. That an entire lab oh, yeah, of scientists... Yeah, but, was... but I think it's couched in the frame because he also says... Like in the wake of the Martian invasion, human science has gone forward so That's much. True. I, I, I um, guess I'm right. So he criticizes the closed mindedness of people for not considering the possibility of life in the past because they weren't out studying. And then he also is wistfully writing about, you know, maybe one day humans will spread to the cosmos. So it's much the way you write, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I saw that opt- the, the technological optimism. And for me, technology was never the villain in this book it was I mean well, well the humans because he's obviously criticizing imperialism and what we as a species do to ourselves and also our environment and then it's the the Martians not their machines I don't think because I understand the machines were seen to be more human I don't think it's technology is the problem I think that Shelley Lovecraft and Wells derive their horror from the arrogance of science that what we find could only be good yeah, I didn't. Re- no, I, didn't I didn't read that. Uh... You saying about how technology um, was progressed because of this in, in in the timeline of the book? It's interesting just going back to what we were saying about how this almost predicts the First World War, and particularly after the Second World War, technology increases majorly as a result of that, and that's why we ended up with the nuclear b- bomb at the time that we did. And the space age. And the space age, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the development of. Science based on I forgot what that German medical scientist was called, the one Mengali. that did all, sorry Mengali, the one that did all the horrific yeah. kind of experiments, right? I mean, there's so much of medicine that was based on that, um, or I mean, there is aspects. There's some, but yeah, yeah. a lot of this stuff was both science scientific. So yeah, yeah, but, I mean, there's certainly experiments that he was able to do that other people weren't able to yeah. do, yeah. right? Um, you know, and you, and you see that in the development of of medicine in particular, actually, because of the ban on going anywhere near dead bodies for a thousand years mm-hmm. right um, you know I mean that, that caused a, a massive thing because you couldn't dissect a body so you have all these elaborate theories about how how they work but no one had actually looked you know I mean of, of course the other thing I mean going back again to World War Z I mean we see a lot of that kind of technological uh, technological development element to that right you know things like guns that don't break yeah um, or aren't super technological advanced and all, all, all of the rest of it although the torpedo rounds are sadly on the way of the dodo <laughs> <laughs> well I, I forget who said this but it, it's been mentioned that without War of the Worlds there was only ever one torpedo ram in the Royal Navy it was HMS Polyphemus I don't know and uh, the, the Cyclops yeah because <laughs> it only had like one big gun yeah. and um, the, the idea of course is that 
the Royal Navy had tons of these experimental classes, and, and they've all been forgotten except for the torpedo ram, which Thunderchild neatly immortalized. And of course, we see Thunderchild appear as a ship name in all sorts of sci fi's. Makes you wonder how many deep, funny boats they had that we've forgotten about, really. Yeah. Yeah. But funnily enough, in the musical and the live stage show, they changed the type of ship. It's, it's, a, it's a pre-dreadnought gunboat, it's not an ironclad uh, torpedo ram. Is that because of how they need to put it on the stage? It yeah. looks better when it's got big <laughs> yeah. cannons firing. Yeah. You know, it does look better, more dramatic. It doesn't fit if it can only fire lengthways. If it's got guns <laughs> on the side, <laughs> it's visually more kind of. Um, but um, so, what about the? You mentioned a minute ago just the environmental angle because I mean I think yeah. that's probably the last uh, last major thing that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, because he talks about like um, what is that? Like you mentioned it earlier, like a uh, hundred thousand or so. People over so many generations have bought human humanity's right to be on this planet. It's kind of a pre Carl Sagan. Mm. <laughs> billions and billions of humans, um, and 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 it's sort of about humans living in the in an ecology. But of course, that's laden with anthropocentric notions that humans have a right to be on Earth. Um, but it's about living in an ecology, and also humans finding like inspiration from. The environment and also about the rats, for example, or rabbits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there is that sort of rekindling some links back to the environment in an age of industrialization, uh, which I think is there but very subtle. Um, I, I think that the, I mean there's the slight mention to hypocrisy of that in the. Okay, so that might be a nice parallel for the first wave of colonization to Africa with malaria and various other fevers, but it happens the other way round with North America, right? The colonizer is the one who brings the disease. Yes. And I guess the second problem is that it's not a problem, but if we look at the lionization of science in the middle of the 20th century, because we're living in the, it was the nuclear age and there was a feeling that science had gone wrong. You look at the one great achievement of human cooperation and science and understanding, it's, it's the eradication of smallpox, right? I think Blevin says that <laughs> the island of the International Space Station. <laughs> um, there is one thing, I mean, for me that still is like, I mean, reading this has struck me as like, you don't really need to update it that much no. to make it scary in that it's, it's the collapse of industrial supply systems. Yeah. So, you know, so much of the book is about the characters eating. Yeah, the Martian train. and human trying to find food, trying to find food and, and clean water actually, and, yeah. and clean water. And he's, and in one bit in the in the crater, he's like drinking dirty water. And mm-hmm. he did, I don't think he got ill from that, but I was thinking, oh, are you gonna get ill? Isn't the artilleryman <laughs> when he first meets him? Isn't he guarding his supplies? Of food? Yeah. yeah, there's yeah. only enough food for one of us here. Yeah. yeah. So so that collapse of supplies, and, and if anything, that's only a more acute problem today because mm-hmm. we have just a more economies. interconnected world, more interconnected and. I mean, Britain can't feed itself. That was true then. It's probably even more true now with even fewer people knowing how to farm crops. Well, I think there, I mean, there is this quite like, there's there's kind of a levelling principle at work in the book, right? I mean, you know, probably a third of the book is about people eating, Mm. but they don't take enjoyment out of it. No. Right? I mean, even his bottle of champagne or whatever, you know, he, he puts that off because it stops him from digging and he says, oh, you know, there's this bottle of wine and, you know, that'll do the job just as well or, or whatever. And I, I was just reminded because um, one of the professors in the department, Milia Kirky, she was saying the other night at her inaugural lecture that um, there's a very real way in which we should be reconsidering social relations rather than as something special. We should just be consider, considering them as another form of parasitic relation. 
right? And I, I think that's at work all the way through the book. Um, you know, there's, despite the technological optimism and the optimism with science and all the rest of it, there's a very real kind of, well, actually, we don't realise how much we're linked to, right? Because all of a sudden, at the end of the book, all eyes are on Mars, right? Oh, Mars is, you know, out of our orbital plane or, or whatever. You know, I, I can't remember exactly how he describes it. But, oh, you know, it means they can't attack us now, right? You know, yeah, whereas, you know, and, and, and it's like the winters in World War Z, you know. It, the winters are okay when you're in the north because the zombies freeze. It's you know, so all of a sudden you've got a slightly more nuanced understanding of, 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 of your place in the world. It's the same with the red weed. You know, that he notes that, you know, almost to a kind of Frank Herbert and June level of detail, that the paths along which this mm. spreads and then fails. There's one more aspect, and I don't know what to, I mean, given the rest of the literature at the time, but, I mean, foreshadowing the First World War, I mean, shell shock and psychological mm-hmm. problems from warfare. I mean, he has a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he has the people nursing him back to health at the end of the book. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how, like, earth-shattering that was in terms of the literature at the time, but that's that, for me, is a really important part of this kind of book as well, is that just, like, as an individual, you can't handle this sort of thing. He mm-hmm. tries to commit suicide. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how frequent that and was this in the literature at the time. The, I, so, I mean, this is it's fundamentally a horror novel, right? It, it's supposed to scare us, and it does. Yeah. And it's interesting you saying this. I don't know how often this comes up in horror novels, but the horror doesn't end when the horror itself is gone. The, the horror, trauma is the there. trauma yeah, is, yeah. is now the new horror. And also, don't read the chapter on the death of the curate before <laughs> going to bed. <laughs> um. Unless you're going to hide maybe in a coal house. I think that one of the best endorsements of um, the book, therefore, is the fact that it appears to have rather seriously mentally affected all of us in subtle ways. Well, it's but... interesting because, you know, you said about the First World War, the fact that we're still suggesting, I mean, I suggested I had uh, odds, odd, odd dreams as well. We still have the horror of the First World War, even 100 years later with the, the poppies of the, mm. the Second World War. I mean, we still have marches for it. This this kind of horror doesn't go, and I quite like the ending for that reason, yeah. Yeah, societal level. Yeah, it changes society. Okay, well, I think that's probably a, a reasonable place to... To finish up, yeah. Well, we've changed society, invented prog rock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're just going to go outside. There's the cylinder landed on Pat <laughs> Kellen Field. So we're just going to see what it is. this week. All right, so um, tune in like next time. Yeah. yeah, tune in next time. Well, um, Alex will be picking the book. For yeah, us. I'm, I'm going to pick a book. <laughs> um, or if, if you've got a suggestion, in fact, get in touch with us on Twitter. Um, subscribe, review on iTunes. Anything you uh, anything you want to do, really. So. Uh, Thanks very much, guys. Thank uh, that you. was fun. Okay. All right. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.